Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Micah, chapter 7. I love to sing gospel songs, don't you? Songs that point us to Christ and his sufficiency, God's steadfast love and affection and faithfulness toward us. It is a joy to our souls. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you thanking you. We're thanking you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy, your love, your faithfulness. We're thanking you this morning that you have given us life through Jesus Christ, that you have removed the debt of our sin, the guilt and stain of our sin, and you've granted to those of us that have trusted Jesus perfect righteousness and a right standing with you. We rejoice in this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you've done. Thank you, Spirit of God, for your ministry in our lives, regenerating us, teaching us, filling us, strengthening us. Help us to worship now in a way that pleases you, that honors the Lord Jesus Christ and brings praise and worship to our God. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, we went to an apple orchard that we had gone to many times. We're all excited. I can't tell you all the things I was excited about. Maybe I like to throw the apples that are, have already fallen. I don't really enjoy apples a lot, except when they're made into apple crisp with a lot of the crunchy stuff on top and ice cream. So here we are. We arrive at the apple orchard. We get our bags, and we head out. It's nice. Grass is wet, of course, so your feet are getting wet. You look at the trees, and they look, they look beautiful. One problem, no apples. It's like, who goes apple picking where there are no apples? It doesn't make any sense. So you, here we are, we're walking around thinking, well, this, this, this isn't going to work out. So we got in the car. We found another one. It's a really great place. That's another story altogether. But an apple orchard with no apples is really just kind of like a bunch of trees. Micah identifies with that apple orchard. In assessing the situation he finds himself in as a prophet in the nation of Israel, he finds himself to be like a fig tree with no figs. And a fig tree with no figs is kind of like just a tree. And he's not too happy. He's, he's really lamenting. We have a lamentation of our friend Micah, this prophet of God. As we consider being in a situation of lamentation and disappointment, we have to ask ourselves, in the midst of that disappointment, where will we find satisfaction? And Micah gives us some insight into this very issue of dealing with dissatisfaction, dealing with disappointment. The way he communicates this, he's going to demonstrate in the first six verses 
the futility of looking in two directions, inward and outward. And then he is going to demonstrate the ultimate satisfaction of looking in another direction, and that would be upward. The futility of the inward and outward, and the complete and utter satisfaction of the upward. This is our discussion this morning. As we consider dealing with disappointment, I want to first tell you, in a very loving, yet authoritative way, do not look to yourself for satisfaction. Do not look to yourself for satisfaction. Look at the beginning in verse 1. Woe is me. This is not a good way to start a chapter. You know that this is, this is kind of the bad news side. Woe is me. I'm lamenting. Why? For I am like those who gather summer fruits. Like those who glean vintage grapes. But there is no cluster to eat. There is, there is nothing of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. And I want you to notice, it's very important to notice this, that Micah is not talking about going to a fig tree and the fig tree having no figs. That's one form of disappointment. He says, I am like a fig tree with no figs. I am like a, a, a vine with no grapes. I've got nothing to offer. He looks internally, he looks at himself and he says, I don't like what I see. I am, I am really in distress. Now the world wants to tell us that we have a spark of divinity in ourselves. They want us to think there's good in everyone. What we need is a better environment. And what we need is better education. What we need is a better self-esteem. They work diligently, particularly at that last one. You know, someone can fail and say, yeah, hey, listen, you did a great job, pal. You didn't do anything right, but you great job. Good job. I want you to feel good about your failure. I want you to embrace failure so that you can feel it again and again. No, no, let's, let's keep it going. Good job on that failure. Maybe next time you'll do just as poorly. I'm telling you, this is the world we live in. It's been this way, and friends, it's getting worse. A.A. A. Milne, writer of the famed Winnie the Pooh series, has, Winnie, uh, has Christopher Robin encourage Pooh's self-esteem, writing, you're braver than you believe, and stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. Well, as you well know, Pooh was a bear of very little brain. That's, that's the good stuff. <laughs> that's the good ones that you get. Never mind when we come to today. Now the world wants to tell kids that what they want is right. You watch a program like, give me a second, <clears throat> Daniel Tiger. This is like the new Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, right? And here's what one of the episodes says. When you can't get what you want, stomp three times to help yourself feel better. This is what this generation is learning. 
Like, you'll feel better if you'll just have a little temper tantrum. Just get it out. You'll feel better. This is where we are. This comes from a world that seeks satisfaction from within. You have all the answers within yourself. You're smart enough. You're strong enough. You're brave enough. What you want is right. And if you can't get what's right, have a little hissy fit. It'll work out great. I'm sure that the markets are going to love the new generation of children with children in every aisle screaming and yelling to get the lollipop that the mom said no about or dad. On the other hand, friends, I want to share the testimony of Scripture. John the Baptist, in referring to Jesus, said, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Do you see the difference? Can you sense the difference? And the testimony of a man named Paul, who says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. I don't have all the answers. I am not the greatest. I am not always right. I'll say it this way, I will not find satisfaction within myself. Paul tells the Ephesian church that their own spiritual condition, without the intervention of God's grace, results in growing corruption. Results in growing corruption. It says it in Ephesians 4.22, you can take a look at it later. He says, your, your old man is growing corrupt. You think, well, I'm, I'm growing, I'm growing. No, your nature is growing corrupt. It's growing in the wrong direction. Without the intervention of grace, this is where we go. Looking to your own resources will leave you feeling dissatisfied. You will feel like a fig tree with no figs. As we look a little bit further into this text, Micah essentially instructs us another way, another direction not to look. First, don't look inward. You'll, dissatisfy, you'll be dissatisfied by yourself. He then tells us not to look outward. Don't look to your fellow man to find satisfaction. Don't look to your fellow man to find satisfaction. Now we're going to read this text twice. Once now, we're going to look at some other texts, and we're going to come back and read this again. We already read it in our, our introductory scripture reading responsively, so we're going to get this text three times, because I, I really think what we desperately need to know the nature of man. This is not the nature of some men. This is the nature of man. You think you're above this? You are wrong. You think you've graduated from this? You are wrong. You have not graduated. Someday, if you know Christ as Savior, you're going to graduate. You'll see him like he is, and so you'll be like him. Praise God, you'll have graduated. Then this will no longer be true about you. But until that day, these, these concepts are very applicable to each one of us. Beginning in verse 2. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men, for they all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. 
that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their complexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For sons dishonor father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Well, that was encouraging. And the testimony of scripture confirms this. Let's look at two other passages in this, uh, three other passages in this regard. First of all, Psalm 12. Micah writes of man apart from God's gracious work of redemption and, consequently, redeemed man who are not surrendered and submitted to the Holy Spirit. Here in Psalm 12, same concept. The Bible says this in Psalm 12, beginning in verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They sit idly, excuse me, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and a double heart they speak. That, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Take a look at another passage, please. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. He's speaking of the condition, the spiritual condition of mankind. This is true of our actions apart from the grace of the Lord. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, the Bible says this. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man, is it really true? But what about believers? Could these statements be made about believers? Aren't believers different? Haven't they been redeemed? Don't they have a new nature? Aren't they now spiritual? Well, let's take a look and examine that for a moment. Take a look at Galatians chapter 5. Now remember how we're looking at this. We're, we're trying to understand. Here's Micah looking at the situation and he's, man, this isn't good. So he looks inside and he finds dissatisfaction and he looks outside to other people and he says, there's no satisfaction there either because people are corrupt. The world is corrupt. And he says, even, even the people of my house, they're corrupt. Sounds like a, a very depressing 
way to look at life. Look at Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. Now he's writing to believers, correct? The church at Galatia. So he's writing to people that have no Christ as Savior. And listen to his instructions, beginning in verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh. Who's he talking to now? Believers. You know what he just said? If you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. The contrary is, if I don't walk in the Spirit, guess what my flesh wants to do? It's what it looks like right here. Starting here. This is what the flesh, even of a Christian, looks like. It says in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be thrown off by that statement. He's not saying only unbelievers do it. What he's saying here is, if you live in your flesh as opposed to the Spirit, you're going to live just like an unbeliever. And all the works of the unbeliever will be evidenced in your life. Because you know what? Just because you come to Christ doesn't mean now you're suddenly very spiritual and make all the right choices. Now that we've come to Christ, sin no longer has dominion over us. In other words, now I have no excuse to allow sin to rule in my heart. However, if I yield myself to sin instead of yielding myself to God, guess what's going to result? Sin. Oh, but not these kinds. Oh, really? Have you met David? You ever read about Moses? Did he kill someone? Did he throw down the tablets of stone? Did he strike the rock? Do you remember Abraham, godly, faithful Abraham? Do you remember him lying and saying his wife was his sister. Remember this? Listen, I don't want to get into all the gory nastiness of that, but that makes me very mad. These are believers, friends. This text is telling you, don't yield to the Spirit. Your flesh will control you, and it's ugly. Ugly. It goes on further. Good news, verse 22. This is what happens when we yield ourselves to the Spirit, but... On the other hand, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He's letting us know, friends, that... If you want to look for satisfaction, don't look inwardly and don't look around and say, oh, they will satisfy me. Uh, I'll find satisfaction in my wife. 
Will your wife satisfy you? I hope so. I hope that there'll be satisfaction involved. I hope that your husband will satisfy you. I hope your children, I hope your parents, I hope your relatives, I hope your church family, I hope there'll be a, a measure of satisfaction that's involved in these relationships. But if that's where you're looking for satisfaction, you will not find it. Your spouse cannot be Jesus for you. If, if your spouse is your savior, you will be ultimately dissatisfied. Head back to Micah, please. We're receiving some good counsel here from Micah. His counsel is letting us know these places are not where you find real, lasting satisfaction. Micah chapter 7, again, we're going to read these, this text one more time, verses 2 through 6. Then we're going to make a couple of comments about the, the, these, these passages, and then we're going to move forward a little bit. Verse 2, the faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great man, man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes, that, that's coming, but right now shall be their complexity. There's complexities now. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. Be careful what you say. She might be like Delilah. Isn't, isn't that the idea? Tell me, Samson, where and where does your, your strength lie? Oh, well, you know, this. He didn't trust her. Finally, after the terrible whining that came, he finally told her. And guess what? The Philistines took him and plucked his eyes out. Micah is saying that that's not far-fetched for anybody. Verse 6. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Interestingly, in verse 3, he says, their hands, this is in, in the New King James, they, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. It's a, it's a good translation. Um, another way to say it is found in the ESV. It's their hands are on what is evil to do it well. You know what that means? They're practicing at getting better at their craft of evil. I think that you've probably met people that do that. You may see them every day in the mirror. I want you to think about your own life and the things that, that you know that you struggle with. It might be that you might, you might find different ways of getting that, that lust of your flesh accomplished. You're practicing to do it well. This is not a positive thing. He, he goes on and talks about princes, judges, and a great man they're, they're conspiring together. What the ESV says is they weave it together. Thus they weave it together. It's very interesting. Charles Lee Stein, uh, Feinberg uh, made this statement about verse 3 concerning the, the prince asking for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe and the great man utters his evil desire. Their method of operation is this. The prince asks for the condemnation of an innocent man. The judge accedes to this request for a bribe, being ready to prevent justice at the desire of the influential. The great man, who is the rich man with influence, desires to bring about the ruin and destruction of another. Thus the prince, judge, 
and great men weave their plots and conspire together. This is the society that they lived in. I wonder if we've seen anything like this in America. Methinks so. Verse 4, the best of them is like a briar. Well, we've all experienced thorns. How do you like them? How do you like it when you are really having to do some, some aggressive work and you don't have gloves on and you're not the kind of person that's kind of like, you know, you know, dainty. You just kind of go in, you're a bull, you're going to get the job done and you're grabbing stuff and, and you're, you're ripping your flesh open. We don't like this. this is what everyone's like a briar. The best of men are like a briar. They hurt. When you come to verses 5 and 6, now I've painted a very ill picture, right? Because that's what Micah is doing. Now, I want to temper it just a little bit. The, the way that I would view verses 5 and 6 is not so much that, like, you can't tell your wife anything or you can't trust your children. That, that would be taking it to the nth degree. Uh, Micah is using hyperbole to, to make a point. But I think the, the point that he's making is this. Don't trust anyone's, ready for this, heart. Don't trust anyone's heart. People's heart this is kind of like the, the emotional, you know, they, they, they have a good heart. They have all good intentions. No, not, not every time, not all the time. And, and again, the, the concept is where are you seeking satisfaction? If you're seeking satisfaction in, in people, you will find yourself disappointed. Now, it might not be this week, and it might not be next week or the next month. It might even be this year. Maybe you'll have a great year with personal relationships and all your friends and family will only do what's right and pleasing and happy to you. Probably not, but maybe it will happen that way. But I can, I can assure you this. If, if you seek your satisfaction in your family or in people, at some point you're going to be disappointed. I'll disappoint you. Not intentionally. I don't want to disappoint you. I don't want to hurt your feelings, or do the wrong thing, or not be there for you in a particular situation. That's never going to be my intent. But it might happen. Don't seek your satisfaction in me, or in, even in the people of the church. Will we satisfy you at times? Yes. When? When we remind you of Christ. Okay? This is our goal. First, Micah says, don't, don't look to yourself for satisfaction. Secondly, he says, don't look outward. Don't look to other people for satisfaction. It's not going to come that way. Then he gives us the real, the real substance. Look to God for salvation. Look to God for salvation. Look at verse 7. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This is good news, friends. When he says, I, I, I know where to look. I can't find satisfaction here. I can't find satisfaction there. But I know I can find satisfaction there. The satisfaction that is ultimate is the salvation of the Lord. I know he will hear me. I know he'll satisfy me. The Bible says in Lamentations 3, now you know verses 22 through 24, great is thy faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning, the Lord is my portion. We know that. Verses 25 and 26 of Leviticus chapter 3, the Bible says this, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good that one should wait quietly. What does he mean quietly? It's not about closing your mouth. You know what happens when we get anxious? We start, anyone that will listen. I'm anxious about such and such. I'm, I'm anxious. Uh, you know, I've got this problem. 
I want you to know about this problem. Uh, this, you know, maybe you can give me some solutions. Maybe you can, maybe you can pray for me. Uh, I've got this problem. We get really antsy. In Lamentations, Jeremiah says, it is good to wait quietly. What are we waiting for? For the real answer. For real rescue. For real solace. For that which will really satisfy. This is what he's telling us. Look over at Psalm 130, please. The psalmist is in distress. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 130, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. So you know this, this is a, a heavy situation. Look down at verse 5 now. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. And with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from her, from his, excuse me, from all his iniquities. What, what is the psalmist pointing us to? When, when you're in the depths, where should you look for salvation? There's only one that satisfies. Cast your gaze upon him. Look at Psalm 62, please. Beginning in verse 1. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Look down at verse 5. My soul, you know he's talking to himself. My soul, wait silently for God alone. For my expectation is from him. For he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Sila. You know what Sila means? Pause and meditate. Listen, this, this should be our meditation every day. We should be meditating on the fact that our God has saved us, is currently saving us, and will indeed save us. That's justification. We have come into a right relationship with God. That's sanctification. We are drawing near to him and enjoying his righteousness that he pours out into our lives. And that's glorification. That's the finished deal. When redemption is complete, when he's finished the job and I am just like Jesus in every way for all time. He is the, the meditation of our salvation. The Bible says in John 6, Jesus is speaking, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never, shall never thirst. What, what is that talking about? Satisfaction. It's talking about a, a hunger being satiated and a thirst being satiated. It, it's talking about saying, I, I have enough. I have what I need, and I need nothing else. Nothing will satisfy you like this. The Bible says this in Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! 
The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says this, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Listen. For he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Friend, I don't know what's going on in your life. I can guarantee that not everything is rosy and wonderful in every front. I'm sure that you have distresses and turmoil and difficulty. I, I know you do. Everyone does. You've got disappointments you're dealing with frustrations, ailments, financial, relational woes. You have concerns about where we're headed as a country. You have concerns about um, elections and all that's going on with that. You're concerned about maybe your workplace. I know there's things that are happening. When you are dealing with disappointment, in what? In whom are you seeking satisfaction? You will not find it in your own soul. Not a satisfaction that will last. You will not find it in your relationships with people. Not the kind of satisfaction we're talking about. Not the one that will make you never thirst or hunger again. You won't find it in those relationships. You will only find the deepest needs of your soul met in a real relationship with Jesus Christ. He satisfies the hungry soul. He can satisfy your soul. You have to start by looking to him. You have to look for your satisfaction from him. I can promise you he will not disappoint. He will not. He is the God of the universe. He spoke the world into existence. And we currently exist in all of our faculties because he sustains the world. This very second, your life very small in comparison to all the things he's doing. Very small, but significant. He can satisfy you with good things. Will you look to him? Let's pray together. Father, we need you and we want you. We struggle. We struggle because sometimes we, we find that we can satisfy our cravings. You've given us warning about this in these passages and many others that if we try to satisfy ourselves with our own desires, we will find ourselves lacking, disappointed, frustrated, and on the outside looking in as far as a, a harmonious relationship with you. We need you to motivate us and move us to cast our gaze upon you, upon your Son, and upon your spirit, that we will yield ourselves to you. We want to be satisfied with good things, that you would be pleased, and that we would be satiated. So help us, please. We also ask for anyone in this room, or listening in whatever form they may be listening, that if they are not one of yours, that you would reveal even that unto them, 
that your spirit would quicken them, make them alive, giving them life, that they would embrace Jesus and have a real relationship that endures and satisfies. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.